According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 7 is our passage this morning. Join me in Hebrews chapter 7 as we return to where we left it a week ago. Looking at Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And we have the nature of Melchizedek as a pattern, as a type, a type of Christ in his millennial glory, and a pattern there that we can learn from as we understand our own priesthood, Melchizedek priests in Christ. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We can settle any issues that have to be settled. Any uh, carnality can be, of course, confessed before the Lord or any other distractions as we fix our eyes upon Jesus, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the blessings that you supply to us. And Father, we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And many of those blessings then have earthly reflections as well that you pour forth grace upon us again and again and again here in time and space. Father, we just thank you that this morning is once again a grace provision. We want to redeem it for the glory of our Savior. And Father, we want to set aside distractions, humble us under the authority of your word, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 7, we're looking at Melchizedek. Remember, Melchizedek is not easy doctrine. And so we want to make sure that we're in fellowship, that we're humble, that we are uh, thinking clearly as we look at Melchizedek. We saw uh, back in chapter 5 that if you are slow of hearing, then Melchizedek is not the doctrine for you. The author was very reluctant to get into Melchizedek doctrine. Uh, as he said so back in chapter 5 and verse 11. Here, though, he just can't help himself. It seems like uh, when he talks about Jesus at the end of chapter 6, how uh, we have an anchor in the soul. This is just powerful stuff. The, the anchor in the soul and the stability that provides then compels us. And I think it gives us all the confidence we need moving forward even to engage in deep things like Melchizedek doctrine. And so, In 619, we see that this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, a forerunner for us. And you know how powerful that is. So that's our stability. Jesus is the forerunner for us, and we follow him there. Unlike uh, the Old Testament, when the high priest went in all by his lonesome, In the New Testament, in the Melchizedek priesthood, Jesus entered once and for all as a forerunner. You and I have confidence to enter, and we should enter today, all day, every day. We should never depart from the holiness of God within the veil. And this is where we are. Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so if he is the apostle and high priest of our confession, if it is in fact our confession that makes us priests as well, he is the high priest, we are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is what it's all about. And that's why chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 are written the way that they are. Really the bulk of Hebrews is about how you and I function in our Melchizedek priesthood, how it is that you and I stand before the throne of grace when we have no right to be there. But Jesus has every right to be there and we are in him as we stand before God the Father in his glory. For this Melchizedek, crossing into chapter 7 now, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Context is Genesis 14. And if you're rusty on the Bible story, go back and reread it. Go back and and review. Don't ever lose sight of uh, Genesis 14, that battle of nine kings. And Abraham was the winner. All right. And uh, he met Abraham as he, Abraham, was returning from the slaughter of the kings. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's important. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tithe, a tenth part of all the spoils. I got an email this week. What, what do I think about tithing? 
Is tithing belong in the New Testament or is tithing limited to the Old Testament? Well, thanks for the email and come to church on Sunday. We're going to talk about it. (laughs) And here we are. All right. Now the emailer doesn't live in Austin, so that's all right. Um, But here's what we're looking at. Abraham gave Melchizedek the tithe. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And the order is significant, and it's, it's uh, theological. We've got we to gotta understand it. He, so he was, first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's Melchizedek. Melech is king, Tzedek is righteous. And so we have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Also, king of Salem. Translate that. What does Salem mean? Salem means peace. So he's king of righteousness, and he's king of peace. What a great picture as a picture of Christ, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And so last week we took the time to walk through the typology on Melchizedek. And then we also, I think, solved quite clearly the literary nature of verse 3. How, how can anybody be made like the Son of God? No one can literally be made like the Son of God, but you can be literarily made like the Son of God. And that's what happened here when in the Genesis narrative... Uh, His father, mother, and genealogy were totally omitted. His father, mother, and genealogy were not mentioned at all. He's introduced in Genesis 14, just boom, out of the blue, Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, king of Salem. And we don't know about who his father was, who his mother was, what his genealogy was like. Very notably omitted in the text. And this was done so as to craft, so as to literarily craft in the writing of Genesis. Moses crafted a person to typify the eternal Son of God. The character was written in such a way, not fictionalized, it's just through the omission of these details specifically to craft a narrative that would make Melchizedek a type of of Jesus Christ, to make him a type of the Son of God. And so he is made like the Son of God. Not literally possible, but literarily beautiful. Literarily beautiful. Melchizedek is the quintessential king-priest. And uh, we talked about that as I was running out of time last week. Now, he literally does have a genealogy. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, he, was not a, uh, he was a human being. He was not an angel. He was not a, a spirit being. Uh, it says in verse 6, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So we can clear away all the speculation, all the sensational wonderings about how uh, Melchizedek couldn't have been human, how he must have been a, an angel or he must have been a, you know, some, some kind of a god or some kind of... All of that is a waste of time, all right? Because I think it's abusing what verse 3 is saying, where he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. And it's ignoring what verse 6 says that says, you know what? Literally, he did have a genealogy. He just wasn't from Levi. He wasn't from uh, Aaron or a descendant of of the Levitical priesthood. So are we clear on that? In verse 6, he has a genealogy, whereas in verse 3, he does not. And that's the reason why. Okay, So it's not recorded. It's omitted from the narrative so that Moses could craft this character as a type of Jesus Christ. In any event, that's what we dealt with a week ago. For today, though, we got some things we can't miss. And when Scripture says, look at this, we better take a look at it. <laughs> okay? He says, observe how great this man was. Observe his greatness. Observe his greatness. Now, how do we do that? Observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Well, now, Abraham, the patriarch, is pretty great, but he gave the tithe to somebody greater than him, and that's the point. Because Abraham, the patriarch, how do you get any better than Abraham, the patriarch? You know, well, Melchizedek, priest of El Elyon, king of righteousness, king of peace, is greater than Abraham the patriarch, okay? And that's an undeniable point. And the author's taking the time to walk the readers through this so they can stop and go, wow, that is pretty great, (laughs) okay? Wow, that is pretty great. I need a scale. I I need a comparison. I don't know how great it is until I can put it next to something else that maybe I've been idolizing. And then I can go, ooh, that is better, okay? That is great, 
So the imperative is observed. See this. Don't miss this. It stands out in an obvious, undeniable way. When you take the time to look at it, when you really see what you're looking at, and you take the time to, to process it, it becomes undeniable in a very undeniable way. It's the same term that's used in Galatians 6.11 when Paul grabs the, uh, the, the pen out of his scribe's hand. He, uh, Paul had eye trouble. Paul had an affliction, a thorn in the flesh. I think it left him facially disfigured. I think it left his eyes affected. And so he used a scribe, somebody called an amanuensis, that would, that would take dictation. And Paul would, you know, say, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and the scribe would be writing it down. And that's how those books of the Bible got written. And then, the, then at the end, Paul would sign his name to them and, and we have the clue there in Galatians 6, 11. This is why uh, the recipients could not miss a, a true letter from Paul as opposed to some of the forgeries that would circulate. He said, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And this is, uh, this is the mark of how he writes and uh, so that they can't be confused in that. Uh, he talks about that as well in 2 Thessalonians because they had received a, uh, a forged letter a forged letter, and he had to dispel that one as well. But in 6.11, Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That's our expression from the book of Hebrews. See what a large or what a great, see what a a, a magnificent hero uh, this Melchizedek is to whom Abraham the patriarch paid a tenth of the choicest spoils, the top part of the heap. Okay, so observe this, see this, don't miss this. In some respects, um, observing true greatness is useful for us because it keeps us from getting caught up in our own uh, relative uh, chases after things. The disciples were constantly trying, arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. Remember those knuckleheads talking about, you know, I want to sit on your right, I want to sit on your left, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Quit debating your own relative greatness and look at Jesus, <laughs> okay? He's right there. Jesus is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, don't worry about the rest of that. So when you're looking at Melchizedek, it solves a lot of issues. And I think for first century priests that had crossed out of Levitical priesthood into the church, it's uh, going to be a powerful blessing for them to digest chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. For tribulational saints after the rapture, these chapters are going to be huge. Uh, the, the priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood of, of Jesus Christ and His work in the heavens is going to be powerful as they uh, have to stand against Antichrist and Satan and the mark of the beast and everything that's coming up in the Great Tribulation. These chapters are going to sustain them during that time. So don't miss this. Let it stand out in an obvious, undeniable way. The greatness of Melchizedek is a relative greatness in comparison to Abraham the patriarch. Look how great he was, because it was Abraham giving Melchizedek the tithe, not the other way around. And it was Melchizedek blessing Abraham, not the other way around. That's the order, and that order is significant. And in fact, there's no dispute. When you look at verse 7, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Find me a blessing in Scripture that goes the other way. Find me a blessing in Scripture. From, uh, from Isaac blessing Jacob to Abraham blessing Isaac to Jacob blessing his sons, it's always the greater blessing the, uh, the lesser. Always. And so this is what we're looking at. Now this is quite interesting because you might recall... The Jews were very um, idolatrous, is that fair? They were very uh, much into magnifying the patriarchs. John 4.12 is an example of that. And for the Samaritan woman at the well, this was a pretty good well because this was the well that Jacob dug. And in John 4, when she meets Jesus at Jacob's well... Uh, the question of greatness comes up and this woman can't believe who she's talking to. So John chapter 4 and verse 12, there's a context for this, but um, because he's leaving Judea and he's going up to Galilee and and, uh, 
as he's on his way to Galilee, he's passing through Samaria, which tells you the urgency of their escape out of Judea, that they, uh, they couldn't take time to go around, so they had to go through the uh, Samaritan region. And so he gets here to Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. I'm reading from John 4 now in verse 5. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, okay? And so a woman comes out to draw water. He sends his disciples in to buy food, uh, but Jesus is, is here at the well. And um, so this woman comes out, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the woman, a Samaritan woman, said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And that just doesn't happen. First of all, she's a woman, but then a Samaritan, and Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, let me just stop right there and tell you a couple things. First of all, it's usually, I would say in 99.99% of all cases, for you and for me in public life or wherever we go, the whole, do you know who you're talking to argument usually doesn't go over very well, all right? Do you know who I am? Okay, I don't recommend that. Uh, do you know who you're talking to? That, that, I'm just telling you, that typically is confrontational and not received well. And, 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 and generally speaking, if you attempt that, you're more impressed with yourself than the other person is anyway, and, and it's just going to go downhill from there. This, I think, is a good exception to the rule that Jesus, the Son of God, is, is perfectly valid to say, do you know who you're talking to? Okay? He, he, I'm good with that. He's good with that. He, that's, that's not an issue because she doesn't. She doesn't know who he is, but she needs to know who he is. Okay? And any unbeliever you meet needs to know who Jesus is. And if they don't know, then you need to introduce them. That's, that's our role as evangelists. And the reason why he was asking her for water is because she's positive, and he knows she's positive. So he's asking her for water. You think it's coincidental that he said, oh, I'm tired, I'm just going to wait here. You guys go away. No. I believe Jesus was an Old Testament prophet, and he's given these briefings ahead of time, and that uh, led by the Spirit, he, he's here, he's waiting for today's ministry to take place, and here it is. So, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Okay? This is, this is the song that His Way Quartet used to sing and one of my favorites. Okay? Um, the whole point is this becomes a teaching exercise for Jesus. He's not talking about the water down that well. He's talking about giving her eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. But notice then, when she says, sir, you know, basically I think you're a lunatic. <laughs> you, you, you're sitting here by a well, but you didn't bring a bucket. What are you doing? And why are you asking me? What do you want to use my bucket for? And then she says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So there's a whole other realm of doctrine then, and she, it's a, it's a great story, but I, I'm not going to get lost in this. Just key in on the fact, the term for greatness, okay, and the term father, the patriarch. And, uh, and don't lose this, okay, because we live in a generation now that's raging against the patriarchy, okay? But there's a biblical patriarchy for the Jewish people, and it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob is the patriarch, from Jacob comes the 12 tribes. Jacob is the one renamed Israel. So they're the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And it's curious to me how a Samaritan Gentile claims Jacob as her patriarch. But she does. They held to a Samaritan Pentateuch. They held to a law and um, claimed Mount Gerizim as the Mount of Blessing. And that's where their temple is. And so this is kind of the, the, uh, the thing they're going with. But she's not confident about that. So now she wants to get her questions answered. 
And as soon as she finds out that this is a prophet standing in front of her, she knows she's going to get her questions answered. And that becomes a whole message all on its own. So Jesus answered and said to her, yes, as a matter of fact, glad you asked. I am greater than Abraham, your patriarch. (laughs) Greater than Jacob, I'm sorry, Jacob, your patriarch. Did Jacob give you this well or did I give you this well? And this is just a well of earthly water. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. You know, you drink something, how long does that last? When are you going to get thirsty again? But when you drink of the living water, it's eternal. You never thirst again. See? And that, by definition, is an eternal security concept right there. So, uh, the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then she gets rather sarcastic. She says, oh, well then great, I never have to bring my bucket or come here ever again. And Anyway, then it goes from there. Um, but notice, the greatness of the patriarch, the greatness of Jacob was her perspective. When we get to the Jews in uh, Jerusalem, the greatness is all about Abraham. Over in John chapter 8, the greatness is all about Abraham. And it's curious here. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) He talks about uh, not understanding. He talks about, uh, I'm doing the deeds from my father. You're doing the deeds of your father. And uh, you were of your father, the devil. This is a pretty confrontational chapter. <laughs> okay, He was a liar from the beginning. When you get, if it gets you frustrated to hear all these lies in the news, uh, well, know where they're coming from. Okay, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Because I speak the truth, not you cannot, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. This is John 8, 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Until you're born again, you don't have ears to hear. Until you have a living human spirit, you cannot accept the things of God. They're foolishness to you. So the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) All right. What's worse than a demoniac? A Samaritan demoniac. I mean, as long as we're calling names. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, did he get that label because he led that woman to the Lord and, and the whole town with her? Back in chapter 4, it's curious. So Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So that's warning because every tongue will confess and you can do it one way or the other. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now he's given these people the same gospel that he gave the, the Samaritan woman, but she was humble and accepted it. These guys are just arrogant as anything. And they are hostile and getting more and more hostile as the chapter unfolds. Never see death. And now the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Who do you think you are? Notice that? Here they idolize Abraham, and yet Abraham's dead. Isaac's dead. Jacob's dead. The tombs of the patriarchs are still with us, at least with them to this day. They're in Hebron now, and the Muslims are claiming them, but that's another fight. Um, Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Utterly mocking the promise of eternal life to the face of Jesus Christ, the one who's offering them eternal life, the one who pays the price to give them eternal life. You're not greater than our father Abraham who died. (laughs) Hmm. The prophets died too. Who, who Who do you make yourself out to be? So now they're flipping it around. Just who do you think you are? <laughs> right? Well, I know who I am. <laughs> okay? All right. 
Who do you make yourself out to be? So Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. It is my Father. This is the same doctrine that we learned earlier in Hebrews, by the way. No one takes the honor to himself. He's not a high priest because he made himself a high priest. God appointed him and he's staying faithful. Okay? It is my Father who glorifies me. He says, you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now let me ask you, what's this verse talking about? When did Abraham see the day of the Lord? Gone back and reread Genesis lately? Gone back and reviewed the life of Abraham lately? How about when he returned from the slaughter of the kings? Ever wonder when Abraham leads out his trained man and he has a crushing victory over those armies? What foreshadowing was that? What image was that? Was that, could that have been, conceivably, could that have been as a vision of Armageddon, as a vision of the things to come? Certainly was typological. Abraham and 300 plus men couldn't, you know, defeated these five kings, who had pre- four kings that had previously defeated five kings. Extraordinary military victory. And he rejoiced to see my day. When we know on his way back, he took communion with Melchizedek. We know on the way back, they rejoiced. On the way back, blessed be Abraham of God most high and blessed be God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And they worshiped bread and wine. How about that? Communion 2,000 years before the church age. (laughs) All right, why? Why this Gentile king priest? What was this worship all about? What fellowship did Melchizedek and, uh, and Abraham have? Can you imagine? All right. So, the, uh, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Now that verse is kind of personal. <laughs> Anybody that's pushing 50. If, uh, all right, rapture pending. So, but here's the thing. He was more, he was older than 33. I'll give you that. I think he was pushing 40. And I think he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Not only was he pushing 40, but he looked older. He absolutely looked older. And uh, some people look younger and some people look older and they said, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? So if he was born in 7 BC and the crucifixion is in 33 AD, that means he was 40 and probably looked older than that given the rough life that he endured as the uh, man of sorrows. Whatever the case may be, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What a statement. What a powerful testimony of glory. Before Abraham was born, he is the I am of the universe. This is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. They're staring right at him and they hate him. He came to his own and his own received him not. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You know, every single attempt on his life was not allowed to succeed. God the Father would not permit Jesus to be stoned to death or thrown off a cliff or rushed off by a mob, okay? His death was scheduled from the foundation of the world. It was going to be on a cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And then there's no running. He goes meekly like a lamb and he submits to the the work of spiritual death. So this uh, comparison to the Abraham the patriarch, what a comparison, And uh, the author of Hebrews tells the readers or the recipients of this exhortation, the author of Hebrews says, observe this. 
and observe the direction this goes. Observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Wow. He gave a tithe to him? Wow. All right, because otherwise we would be idolizing Abraham. We would be idolizing Levi. We would be, I mean, maybe not idolizing, maybe we would just be, you know, magnifying Aaron, the great high priest, and Aaron's sons, and the tribe of Levi. Well, Aaron was, uh, you know, we have the, the order here on this. All right. So observe. Then we get into verse 5. This thing about tithing. Observe how great this man was to whom Abraham gave, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choice of spoils. Indeed, those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is to collect from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. And so what's this about? Levitical tithing, Old Testament tithing. It was designed for the covenant people to bless their designated priesthood. Old Testament tithing was for the covenant people to bless their designated priesthood. This is the whole point that the author's making here, that Luke or whoever the Hebrews author is, is making here in verse 5. The sons of Levi collect a tenth from all the Jewish brethren. They're all descendants of Abraham. They're all co-equal as sons of Abraham, heirs of promise. But within this body of, of Abrahamic people, 11 of those tribes are blessing the tribe of Levi. See, or 12 tribes are blessing the tribe of Levi since Joseph got doubled. So 12 tribes of, of, of Israel are blessing the tribe of Levi. And this is, the, this is the pattern. This is what we're supposed to learn from. This is what Old Testament tithing was about. And this then becomes the pattern because as great as Levi is or as great as the Aaronic priesthood is, it's inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. And that's the point. The, the Levitical priesthood was not as great as the Melchizedek priesthood. And so for these people, they need to be properly oriented to their new position in Christ to the new Melchizedek priesthood that they've been ushered into. And if they're tempted to go back, if they're tempted to return to Judaism, if they're tempted to race back to Jerusalem, I've got to do it quickly before Jerusalem gets destroyed, but if they're in a hurry to get there, that's the problem, see. That's the whole thrust of this apostasy warning is falling away from the faith, returning back to their legalism, uh, returning back to Judaism before grace. And the author's warning him, saying, why would you go back to that anyway? What you have now is so much greater. And so this is the, this is the thought process here. So, those are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office. What was happening there? We're going to take some time. We'll go back through Numbers and Deuteronomy and we'll show the reason why. This is so that these guys could be set apart. They could be set apart. They could be blessed. So let's look at Numbers 18 and, and demonstrate this. And it's their fellow Jews that are doing it. It's Judah and Simeon and, and, and uh, Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali and all those other tribes. Manasseh and Ephraim. And all of them, they're Jewish. All of them are descendant of Abraham but they're not Levitical. They're not the appointed priesthood. They, uh, they have the duty to provide a tithe, but that tithe goes to the priesthood for a reason. They are blessing their designated priesthood. All right, so Numbers 18. And it doesn't take much, I tell you. It's pretty easy. And there's other passages besides Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 14. But when you look at the, the tithing passages of the Old Testament, then you ask yourself, why would I do this in the New Testament? Why would I tithe as a member of the church? And how would I tithe as a member of the church? If you understand the, 
totality of what the tithing even is. See, we've got a much greater principle. We've got a grace-giving privilege to, to bless our designated priesthood with. We don't have a tithing mandate. All right. Numbers 18. Verse 21 says, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. So all the other tribes had land grants and they had boundaries and they had territory, which was for their blessing, was for their feeding, was for their provision. Levi didn't have that. Levi was set apart for the priestly service. And so, well, how are they going to eat then? They don't have farms. How are they going to eat then? They don't produce food. Well, the other 12 tribes are going to feed them. They're going to be supported by their uh, work of service. So the sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. Crossing within the uh, outer veil into the outer court, uh, it was only for the Levites, only for the priests, okay? Anyway, they then said, when they did things changed when they built the actual temple and they had a Gentile court and a woman's court and different things there. But this is talking about the original tabernacle. All right, only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting. They shall bear their iniquity. They shall be, it shall be a perpetual statue. There's that word perpetual. Jesus Christ holds his uh, priesthood perpetually. We're going to talk about the perpetual sacrifice of Christ. Uh, but this is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And among the sons of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So they're being set apart. They're going to be different. Levi is different from all those other tribes. They're set apart. And their inheritance is their service. And uh, the other tribes are going to come and bless them. All right? And so if somebody from, let's just say, some you know, average schmuck from Issachar, he can't get there. There is, a, there is a distance. He cannot come as close as the Levites can come. And the Levites cannot come as close as the priests can come. And the priests cannot come as close as the high priest can come. Only the high priest, all by himself, can enter within the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the innermost place to, to the presence of, of the Shekinah glory. For most other folks, man, there's a distance a greater distance, a greater distance, depending on, on who they are. You see why this is so alien to the church age? Why it's so alien to you and me today? Because we are all in Christ. We are all within the veil. We all approach the holiness of, of God the Father because we have the holiness of Christ. This is, this is such a contrast. All right. And then it goes on to say, uh, for the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. And so um, then it goes. And then 25 through 32, it continues um, with respect to that. And then, then there's a tithe of the tithe. Even within the tithe that went to the Levites, the tithe of the tithe then goes to the priests. It's only the family of Aaron that's priests within the tribe of Levi. And so that becomes the tithe of the tithe in uh, 25 through 32. All right. And then there's a lot of eating that takes place. You know, when you bring your tithe, when you bring your offering, and then when you slaughter the animal, they had a lot of dead animals. They had a lot of food, okay, that were offered up in, in fire. And uh, as soon as you finish with the spiritual work of sacrifice, then, then what do you do? Well, now you've got cooked food. So, uh, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> Let's eat. Okay? And the food then becomes the fellowship time, the time to learn doctrine, the time for the priest to teach the law. And so there's the blessing then to learn doctrine from the, uh, from the priesthood. And so they have the, uh, the opportunity to do this. And so it gets described. Um, and then there's the drink offerings that come from the wine. And then um, 
but the rest that's left over, they get all the leftovers are for them. In verse 31, you may eat it anywhere, you and your households, for it is your compensation in return for your service in the tent of meeting. And so that's, that's how they eat. That's how you feed your Levite and your priest. Over to Deuteronomy 14. So yeah, what happens when uh, worship gets a little thin? What happens when uh, the other tribes aren't bringing so many sacrifices these days? What happens when they start to drift in their observance? Well, <laughs> the food gets a little thin for the Levites and the priests, doesn't it? All right. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 29. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Your firstborn. Remember, it's first fruits. Say, well, I don't know how many more calves this 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 uh, cow is going to have. Um, do I want to give the first one? What if that's the only one? <laughs> what if this cow doesn't have another calf? Well, give the first one to the Lord. You can have the next one. That's the pattern. Anyway, if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So convert the animal to cash and go and spend the money when you get there. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. Hmm, drinking in the Bible. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. It is a worship service with food and wine. It is a worship service, but it's going to be done with the priests and the Levites because they're going to teach doctrine while you're eating. They're going to eat with you. You shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. And it goes on, uh, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you and the alien, the orphan and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied. So the tithe was actually broken down into three segments and one was only every third year when it comes down to that. Two of them were every year, one was every third year. And, uh, and so this provided for a lot of things. It provided for their temple service, it provided for their worship, it provided for their priesthood. Uh, the second tithe was for the widows and the orphan, orphans, it was the welfare program of, of their culture. And then uh, government services and other things. Anyway, three portions on the tithe. So how do we apply this today? How do I tithe today? Given the fact that Uncle Sam's already taken more than 30%, what, uh, what then what is left over for Austin Bible Church? What then is left over for the widows and orphans? What then is left over for charity and, and other things? See, our culture is so far departed from the biblical standards. Plus, we're not a theocracy anyway. We weren't built to be a theocracy whereby uh, our tithe can go to the government and the uh, temple at the same time. Uh, we have that separation. All right. The church has no tithing mandate, but a grace privilege to bless our designated priesthood. And so we give as unto the Lord, and we are supporting the Lord. First and foremost, we are supporting the Lord. And then, secondly, through that, we are then supporting pastors and missionaries, evangelists, those that proclaim the gospel, earn their living by the gospel. And this is the pattern that we have in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. So join me here. 1 Corinthians 9. You know, it's interesting too. There's no... Uh, when you see, when you go into the Gospels and you go into the Epistles, you get to the New Testament for the operation of the church, we find that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated. 
that uh, murder is still murder, adultery is still adultery. You know, we, those things, they are what they are. They're still sins, and in the church we don't do them. Uh, the, the, the Sabbath, though, is not stated for the church age, not like it was for Israel. Our Sabbath is day after day as long as it's called today. And so we have an adjustment dispensationally, uh, an adjustment for the church whereby our Sabbath understanding is the Hebrews' rest uh, as opposed to Saturday. And then the other thing that's not given to the church is the tithe, the tithing to the nation of Israel. It is not given to the church. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We render unto God what is God's. And when we are giving to the Lord, it is not a 10% have to, it is a want to. It is an entirely what do you want to give approach. And it's all grace. And so 1 Corinthians 9, 6, as Paul talks about this, about his apostolic prerogatives. And um, in verse uh, 3, my defense to those who examine me is this, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? See, what Levite was expected to work outside the temple? What Levite was expected to have a moonlight as, a, as a something at night with a side gig? Okay, no Levite would do that. The Levites were supported by the tithe. Likewise in the church, those who proclaim the gospel earn their living through the gospel. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? The grace gifts to Corinth should have supported Paul's ministry. And yet, he does not claim that as a right over them because they can't handle it, they can't give in grace. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Yeah, who does that? Who pays himself to go to war? And says, hey, you can be a soldier, I'll pay you to be a soldier. Okay, it's a soldier of fortune and it's my own fortune and I'm paying myself to be the... (laughs) Yeah, who does that? Who plants a vineyard does not eat the fruit of it? I mean, really, who does that? Who uh, tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? What's the spiritual reality here under law? It is written, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Was God concerned about the oxen? That whole Deuteronomy thing, was that about oxen? Or is that designed to teach? Is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. You put all that work into your vineyard because you want to be drinking the wine at some point. And you're not going to drink all the wine, you're going to sell most of it. That's, that's your livelihood. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's the rhetorical question. And that's true for the apostles, that's true for pastors today, that's true for anybody ministering the Word of God. Generally speaking, we tend to support pastors and evangelists and missionaries at the front of the list. So, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In other words, you've been blessed with fruit for all eternity. How do you put a price tag on that? which is why there's no charge in grace. I don't want to insult grace. What's this sermon worth? Well, if I said it's uh, $10,000, write a check before you leave, even that would be an insult because the fruit from today is going to abide forever. And $10,000 is insulting for something that's going to last forever. A million dollars, still an insult. A billion dollars, still an insult. Because the fruit from today abides forever. If others share the right over you, do we not much more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. When he was actually in Corinth, he worked as a tent maker. He was was working on the side to support his ministry. We did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will not cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. It was a stumbling block for them and he didn't want them to have a stumbling block. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? That's just how it works. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. 
my last shift in the sheriff's department was, uh, you know, for four years I did both. For four years I was bivocational, working at night in the Travis County Jail, getting off at 7 o'clock in the morning, taking off my sheriff's uniform and putting on a suit and tie. <laughs> and I don't know what I was preaching because I was dead tired, but, you know, you're up all night, you go home at 7 in the morning and you preach. And then at noon you get pluckers for lunch and then you go to bed. All right. Those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. So my last shift in the jail was Christmas Eve of 1999. And uh, I didn't even work the whole shift. I just worked an hour. And then at midnight, my sergeant said, Merry Christmas and enjoy your your retirement. So I left. And uh, that was my last shift. I haven't been back to jail since that night. Okay. But the... uh, the, all my coworkers, my supervisors, everybody thought, you'll be back. You'll be back. You're going to come back. You can't, you can't walk away from all this money. We just got a brand new sheriff, and she just gave everybody in the sheriff's department a 30% raise. Overnight, boom, 30% raise. That's a huge jump overnight. And I'll admit, I liked it that one month that I got it, because that was uh, <laughs> Christmas. I mean, that was, it was good to get that. But my treasurer said at the time, said, what do we have to pay you to get you out of the jail? Okay, what do we have to pay you to be full-time? Because you're living in the parsonage, there's no rent, there's no utilities, it's just you and your family and you got to eat, you know, we get that. But what do we have to pay you to get you away from the secular work? See, and that question, that question was everything. I said, I don't know, but it's the Lord has a plan, and this is the right kind of question. And, and it was the priority for not just the treasurer, but for all the deacons, it was the priority. They said, this flock will be blessed if we bless our pastor. And that's biblical. And I haven't been back since. <laughs> I have not gone back to work. I've not starved, as, as any fool can plainly see. I'm well fed. I am well fed. God has been faithful. Those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now I understand, I balance that out with in the end times, difficult times will come. I get that. We live in the present evil age. We live in difficult times. And most pastors I know are bivocational. Either they're working or their wives are working or they've got some kind of income coming from some kind of retirement or something. I I recognize that Austin Bible Church is the exception anymore in this generation Austin Bible Church is the exception among our style of churches. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's all grace. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. See, personal giving is private, but corporate giving is public. And these are the, the grace gifts that churches are supplying in a, in, do I need to say that again? Personal giving is private. When you're back there at the grace box, no one's watching. That's between you and the Lord. Even your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing. Okay, That's private. That's personal giving. But public giving, corporate giving from the church, if the churches of Macedonia are sending a fund for the Apostle Paul's uh, missionary ministry, that's public knowledge. There's full accountability. And that treasure is accountable and the men that administer it are accountable. I want you to know about the grace that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They were so poor, they were extra rich in how liberally their, their gifts overflowed. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave, and here's the key, of their own accord. Grace giving is always a want to. It is never a have to. There's never a gun to your head. There's never a 10% mandate. There's never a, uh, an examination. Let's have a church committee sit down. Bring us your tax forms as you file because we're going to assess your tithe based upon the tax forms that you submit to the IRS on April 15th. I know churches that do that. All right. Not this church. I'll tell you that. All right. Begging us. So it's of their own accord. Verse three, begging us with much urging for the favor, the grace 
a participation in the support of the saints. That's why it's a want to, not a have to. Begging, oh, let me be a part of this. Can I be a part of this? Can I please be a part of this? I want to be a part of this. There's some neat things happening. The Lord is being glorified. I want to be a part of that. Participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. You see the order on that? It's first to the Lord. When you're giving, you're giving unto the Lord. You're not dropping a a, a $10 bill in the grace box because Pastor Bob deserves it. Okay? (laughs) It's to the Lord. All right. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. And so it's interesting as we see this here. But, But if they can't do it on a grace basis, then he doesn't want it. That's what we have in chapter 9, verse 6. This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So your attitude as you give is either grudgingly or bountifully. It's either sparingly or bountifully. And it's your attitude. What do you give? What do you want to give? And what's your capacity? Is it a little? Great. Then do a little and pray for greater capacity. Fill my cup and fill it up again. Give me a bigger cup next time. Because if I can sow bountifully, I'm going to reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This verse torpedoes how a lot of churches operate their finances. When they do pledges, sometimes they even call them faith pledges, but it's no such thing. It's not grace, it's not faith. It's a pledge. It's a binding thing. What are you doing? It's got to be grace. As you've purposed in your heart, not grudgingly. It's not a have to. God loves the cheerful giver. If you're not loving the Lord when you're giving it, we don't want it. It's even written into our constitution, by the way. We do not knowingly accept financial gifts from unbelievers. We're supported by born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And if born-again believers in Jesus Christ want to honor the Lord and the ministry of the Word of God, they are free to give as much as they want to give. If, uh, if a donor in Europe wants to give something, they're free to give something. We don't even have to know who they are. <laughs> you know, the, like the anonymous check that paid for this building. All right? We don't even know. And uh, the left hand doesn't know, the right hand doesn't know. <laughs> no, neither hand knows. It just shows up in the mail one day. And says, uh, uh, we have an anonymous donation that wants to give uh, $597,518.27 or whatever it was to Austin Bible Church, something like that. (laughs) I still have the email the treasurer sent me that said, you're not going to believe this. (laughs) All right. And that's grace. It's not a have to, it's a want to. As God loves a cheerful giver. And guess what? You're not going to suffer because of it either. God is able to make all grace abound to you. See, grace just provokes more grace. Grace abounds. Try it sometime and see. And it's not a guilt thing. And it's not a gimmick. You're not uh, doing some kind of a legalism that if I cast my bread on the water, it has to come back a hundredfold. So if I give Jesus 10 bucks, I want to know where my thousand dollars is. Okay? You are twisting grace like uh, nobody's business. All right? So quit doing that. But God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Do you know how many abundant terms are in that one verse all by itself? So he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, the greater your capacity, the greater your capacity. Exercise it, stretch it. God will stretch it. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. This is how to be a biblical liberal. You give yours as unto the Lord. Okay? (laughs) You don't steal from your neighbor. That's not a biblical liberal. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And so it multiplies, and you support the ministry. 
And the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is an overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. There's a hallelujah chorus of amens in the prayers that rejoice over grace. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. See, and it becomes just multiplied. And guess what? They get to pray for you too. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. So we have the blessing to say, Father, we don't know who that was in Vienna, Austria, but you do. And Father, bless them, encourage them, whatever they're going through today, because they blessed us. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Sometimes you just can't even put it into words. That's what grace is all about. Finally then, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. The elders who rule well, notice not every elder rules. Some elders are elder by maturity status, but they're not vested into the office of overseer. But the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So to be an elder overseer, you should be able to teach, but not every elder overseer is a teacher, a regular teacher. But if you're prioritizing where your budget goes, who's the first one you support? All right. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. This is the application. Those who proclaim the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. The church has no tithing mandate, but a grace privilege to bless our designated priesthood. And it's curious to me when I I'm going to have to close with this, but we, um, we pray uh, particularly because, you know, our nation goes through different seasons and our economy goes through different seasons. And I think Texas weathered the uh, recession better than a whole lot of places. And uh, the economy, by the way, nationally is just booming in different ways. But it's curious to me how many local churches I'm aware of that are presently 30%, 40%, 50% below their annual budget. See, uh, and, you know, I can name them if you want me to name them. Uh, multiple churches that I'm aware of, all right, that are below their budget presently. I can name at least five. And, um, and even us, we're below our budget for the year, as James can tell you about if you want to ask him about it. But the issue is, it's not tithing, it's not gimmicks, it's not guilt. It's a priesthood of those that enter within the veil that want to glorify Jesus Christ, and so they multiply their grace. And that's what we're looking at here. All right, so we have a Melchizedek priesthood. How great was Melchizedek? Well, Abraham gave him a tithe, and he blessed Abraham. That's the pattern. And even Levi gave Abraham a tithe, or gave Melchizedek a tithe, if you want to think about it, because Levi was in the loins of Adam when, Adam gave, when, when Abraham gave the tithe. So next week we'll talk about how do I do something if uh, genetically I'm still in my grandfather's loins? How do I do something? How is it that it's credited to me if, uh, if I'm not born yet? Well, it is. There's a doctrine there and we want to understand that. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege we have in uh, making... Uh, appropriate applications, Father, so that we rightly divide the word of truth, so we don't twist scriptures and abuse things. And Father, we don't uh, apply a tithing principle to the local church, and we don't manipulate things on a have-to basis, whereby the person grudgingly forks the dollars over. Father, there's, uh, there's no guilt in any, in any grace it's always making the request known and leaving matters for the priesthood to exercise in. And I thank you for that. I rejoice in the amount that is, uh, the sky is the limit, Father, because there's no, there's no 10% minimum and there's no anything maximum. It is grace upon grace. What do you want to give in your priestly appreciation for what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf? 
And so, Father, these are the grace provisions. I do pray for uh, for James Randall. He's our treasurer. And for the other treasurers of the other churches that uh, that I could name. And uh, for the pastors of those churches, I appreciate the fact and we have a, a deacon's meeting and we see the budget and we see the red numbers that uh, we have faith and that we have uh, unanimity on the part of uh, the deacons and deaconesses and myself that we uh, we pray pray over it, we leave it with you, and we uh, we know that you've been faithful and you will continue to be faithful. You cannot not be faithful, Father, and so we thank you for the faith that we have in all things. So, Father, uh, this day is yours, this message is yours. Make use of it as you see fit, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.